Father, I'm Stuart, one of the elders here, and it's lovely to be with you. And we're looking at this uh, series called Jesus the Game Changer. This is the book. There's videos. Some of the gospel communities, I think, might be making use of this, which is great. Um, it's, it's a wonderful little way of just saying what Jack was saying earlier in introduction, and that is the gospel is good news. And that's what it actually means. But th- th- this is the point, and that Jesus is good news. He is the one that makes the world a better place. He's the one that owns it, says one verse. He's the one that it's made for. He's the one that's made heading towards him. That's the point in the, in the book of Ephesians. And uh, the point of it is that he wants to infuse the world with goodness. He wants to make the place a better place. And so uh, what we're looking at with this series is uh, just about five or six of the themes. There's about a dozen in the book of how Jesus has influenced the world. And the particular topic that we're looking at today is leadership. This is something very important to me. I was just sitting there and realizing I've been leading groups and organizations for over 40 years. I'm only 42, so it's amazing. (laughs) Um, I've been leading groups and and most more importantly, leading people for over 40 years. Because that's really the point, that we lead people. And each of us have opportunities to do that, whether we lead an actual group or organization or whether we just influence people. Uh, Parents lead their children. Husbands lead their wives. Sometimes wives lead their husbands. We, we influence people for good. And that's part of what we're going to be thinking about, uh, even as we think more specifically about the, the leadership mentality that has come into the world, particularly the Western world, uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's, um, that's what we're going to be looking at for our topic today. These Christian concepts of leadership have actually changed the way people do things. They, the world is different because of what Jesus did. And what he said about leadership, we've just had those two readings from Mark 10 and from um, uh, John 13. We'll look at some others as well. But you see, we think it's just normal that leaders would be good leaders, that leaders would look after the people they're leading, that leaders would actually somehow serve the people who are in their charge. We just think that's normal, because it is. But it wasn't always that way, and it isn't always that way around the world. That is a particularly and unusually Christian concept. And it's helpful for us to stop and get the point of that, just how unusual that idea is. And we're all sitting going, well, of course that's how it should be. And that's the point. Jesus has influenced this world. He has influenced how we think. He's influenced the way Australian culture is, Western culture more generally. And we all just shrug and go, of course. But let's stop and take a little time to recognize just how great a thing it is. We notice when... um, somebody is a leader in public life, you know, politician or something like that, we just expect that they will serve the public good. They're called, in some senses, public servants. That's what they're there for. And, and when we see uh, somebody in Christian ministry self-sacrifice, we go, well, that's impressive, but expected, don't we? You know, we just expect people who are leading a Christian thing will actually put themselves out, that they won't live a selfish life. And so that's a a wonderful change in the way this world is, or at least parts of it. And if people don't do those things, well, we say, you know, that politician who ripped off what they were doing, used it for their own good, well, they deserve a greater condemnation because that's not what leadership is about. You see, the way we, it's, it's so infused in our thinking that we see the negative of it, we're, we're offended, we're, we're affronted. We, we can't believe that someone would actually do that. It's so clearly wrong. Now, when Jesus was uh, describing the Gentile leaders in his day, 
He wasn't saying something outrageous. You know, they lorded over the people. That's, that's the phrase he used. That wasn't an outrageous, oh, oh he's a little critical there, isn't he? No, no. Someone goes, yeah, of course they do. Of course the Gentile leaders lorded over their people because they own them. They're the boss of them. They're, they're, they're subject to the leaders. So, of course, the leaders lorded over them. They're the lords. But he gives a different view of how he thinks leadership be, should be. He gives, he gives a different perspective on how he's going to lead. And he calls his disciples to live as different kinds of leaders as well. It is a very radical thing, that thing we think is so normal now, a very radical thing when Jesus starts saying it. Now, there are certainly Old Testament in, uh, uh, traces of this idea that God is the one who cares for his people, uh, like a shepherd cares for his sheep. You, you have that idea through the Old Testament, but it is with Jesus, the game changer, as our series suggests, that makes this thing a different thing. And in John 13, yeah, there's no servant there. You know, it's this special meal they've gathered, the Passover's coming up, they've gathered. There's no servant there to wash feet. And surprise, surprise, but not to us because we're used to it, not to us because it's so infused us, the leader serves, the leader washes the feet. And he says, this is an example for you, apostles. He says, you've seen what I've done. Copy me. Copy me. I've set you an example so that you, uh, for you to do as I have done for you. Uh, it's very interesting in John's gospel. In the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the, uh, what we, we call the Last Supper. And inside it, we kind of call the Lord's Supper. You know, where the cup and the bread and the remember my death? That's not in John's gospel. What he has instead is the foot washing. And at first they look quite different events, but they're actually speaking out a very similar thing. Because he talks about, I don't know if you noticed the language, he talks about when he's washing their feet, it's, you have now a part in me. If, you don't, if you're not washed by me, you have no part in me, which is exactly what we do when we remember the, in the communion, isn't it? You know, we drink the wine, we eat the bread, we're taking part in Jesus. His life is feeding us. We're infused together, is the idea. And so, too, in this foot-washing event, it's all bound up with the reality of his death. It's all bound up that that's where life comes for us. That's where we, that's where we share in who he is, and he, he joins himself with us. Such a beautiful picture. It's not just a prosaic, oh, okay, I better do a job here. No, no, there's, actually, there's something actually binding together in this foot-washing moment. And that's the example for us. The moment of greatness for Christ is the moment of strangest weakness, isn't it? On the cross. On the cross. The thing of utter shame, if you were to say, oh, my relative was killed on a cross, people wouldn't want to talk to you anymore. They, they'd ignore you. They, they'd say, well, that is not the family we want to marry into. That's the way it would be in the ancient world. But it became a boast that our King, our Lord, our God died on the cross. This establishes in then the rest of the New Testament, the writers, the leaders, a whole new way of thinking about leadership. They actually speak very differently from other ancient documents. You go through and see what it's like to be a leader in the ancient world, very different kind of themes from what we're used to from our Bible studies. Uh, for the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Thessalonians, I love this little passage. He's He's got three images. One, he says, leading is like being a child. Leading is like being a mother. Leading is like being a father. Uh, we just had reference to all these 
young mums here, nursing mothers is in fact the, the metaphor he uses. Not just motherhood generally, but actually a, a nursing mother. It's a beautiful thing. Have a look. I'll read it to you. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though we were apostles of Christ, we could, we could have asserted ourselves, or, uh, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Now, the leaders in the old days, they expected people to bow down, literally and metaphorically, in their words. They expected people to praise them just because they walked into the room. That was the norm. And Paul says, that's not what we expected from you at all. We came in like children, you know, people who would not be highly valued in that culture. And then he goes on, he says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, what a beautiful and strange picture for leadership. So we cared for you because we loved you so much we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. This is him talking about Christian people, a, a, a church that he founded. It, it's an extraordinary picture of what it was to be a leader as a Christian leader. Verse 9, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. We know from other passages that probably meant that he was making tents. That was his kind of family traditional trade. He was a, a more wealthy kind of guy than that, but uh, gave up his wealth, I suppose. But he, he would work physically with his hands in order not to be a burden to them. Self-sacrificing. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Now, back in the ancient world, that could have been a pretty rough statement. But look at his definition. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. What a beautiful picture of fatherhood. Uh, dads out there, let's just mark those three words down. So here is Paul's whole new way of thinking that he will describe his leadership. Uh, you see other elements, of course, but these just jump out at me as, as such a beautiful little picture. You have the same from Peter. Peter's got a completely different view of how things ought to be. See, that Jesus has influenced his leaders who will then lead and influence more. So 1 Peter 5, this is the, the, towards the end of 1 Peter's gospel, uh, 1 Peter's letter, um, Peter's first letter. He says, to the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings. It's interesting, isn't it? Peter, um, one of the lovely things about 1 Peter, if you're just to read through, think how many times he just subtly references, or he ex explicitly references, what he saw in Jesus. It comes up again and again and again. He was there, and I'm going to tell you about it, he says. I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. That's us, he says, you and me, we lead us together. This is uh, written to a place like modern Turkey. He's got various churches there. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you. It's almost word for word Jesus, wasn't it? Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Flock, And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. 
scriptures are so infused with that inversion, Christian inversion of thinking of what is it is to be a leader, what is greatness, what is what is lesser. So it's a beautiful picture. You cannot be a self-server as a leader, and yet that is the norm. Part of the foundation in Western society that is anti-corruption, which is a thing we enjoy and barely even notice as well, is that we have leaders who will actually bother to lead in this kind of biblical way. Even those who are not Christian still are committed, many of them, to this kind of thinking. And again, we get affronted when they're not, because we just know that that's how it ought to be. And it only ought to be, and we only know it because Jesus said it, and it has infused our Western way of thinking. Well, what is the norm outside of Christ? If this had not happened, if Jesus had not taught, if he had not been the game changer, what kind of culture, society would we have? Well, tribal chiefs is basically the best way to think of it. Tribal chiefs who dominate and control and take what they want and then set up a system of patronage. This is the norm in the world, in all periods, other than the influence of Christ. Discriminate against some just because I don't like them, just because you're not the right tribe, just because you've done something wrong to me or my ancestors years ago. Discriminate against that group and prefer this group. That's normal. Uh, the lesser person in the tribe has no recourse against the greater. just doesn't work that way because power is exercised for the benefit of the powerful. And uh, what you then have is chief of a tribe and then chiefs of chiefs. You have, uh, therefore, building into larger and larger groups where one will dominate the next, who dominates the next, who dominates the next. That's just normal society. And you have two uh, concepts, uh, self-aggrandizement. I will do it for my glory. I'll have a great house. I'll have a retinue of servants. I'll have glorious clothes. Only I can wear purple. No one else, or me and my family. Only I can wear red, if you're in China. Only the ha roofs can be gold in the palace. Only those ones can have gold. All these things, aggrandizement. Wealth, independence from others, that's what it looks like. Self-aggrandizement. And sycophancy is the other balancing thing. To be a crawler is the phrase we would use. Uh, flattery, the lower flatters the higher. Oh, you look, your majesty, you look magnificent today. Well, of course I do. I'm wearing gold and only I'm allowed to wear gold. Obedience is there. Anxiety to avoid displeasure. You know, you get, the, you get the frown of the king, you get the frown of the tribal chief, it's the last thing you want. And he barely has to lift an arm uh, to do anything because his flunkies will do it for him. That's the way it works. This is just normal. You see it on TV. I've seen it on TV. I've seen it in other places. You see it, read it in history. Self-aggrandizement and sycophancy. How different then the Christian model the Christian dynamic. Let me read the verses in uh, Hebrews 13. This is what he just says. A little phrase. It just slots in. It's not a big section about leadership. He's just slotting it in with a number of other things he's saying. The writer of uh, the book of Hebrews. He says, have confidence in your leaders. Wow. Wow. Have confidence in your leaders. That is so countercultural. And submit to their authority because they keep watch over you. And as, you, uh, as, as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. There's just such a beautiful little phrase here. Imagine living a life 
before a leader with confidence, with security. And we go, well, of course we can. That's right. You become so used to it. We've become so used to it. It's, it's just bleeding obvious that that's how it should be because that's how God has made the world to be good. So the opposite of self-aggrandizement and sycophancy is this, this dynamic, we've got it up here, of service and confidence. I could have said service and security, then there are four S's, that would have been better, wouldn't it? <laughs> but the word was confidence. Imagine feeling secure under a leader. That is not the norm. The normal thing is to be anxious under a leader. <laughs> this Christian dynamic is a wonderful transformation of what life can be like for people, good leadership. And we, we notice the outrage when people aren't like this. Jesus' servanthood has buried itself deep into our culture. And we ought to be grateful for it. We ought to acknowledge it. And we ought to tell people about it. We ought to let them know, you know, the way this world is set up, the way our culture is experienced. It, it's a great thing from Christ. Now, one of the things I've, um, one of the little difficulties I have with this book, it's all it's good stuff, but it's very positive. And at no point do they say, oh, somebody might view this thing differently. And so I'd like to view this thing differently. Um, in, in academic terms, it's going from a diploma course to a bachelor's course. Ready for it right now? It's to think about, well, what does the other person say who would critique what I'm now just saying? Because what I'm saying, I believe, and most of you are going, yeah, we're used to that. We love Jesus already. You know, we're already committed prior to Jesus being a good guy and what he does as being helpful and positive. But what if you're talking to somebody and they say, oh, that's not how I think about it, or what about this problem? That's what I want to do next. And perhaps if you're doing the book or the videos in your group, you might like to ask what other arguments might others mount against this argument that you might then work it through. So that's what I want to do for the next uh, couple of minutes. What is the possible argument and my response to, I think, bring us back to the point of it? I guess the question is, why doesn't it hold everywhere where Christianity is a majority? My mind goes immediately where I've been just recently, and that is East Africa. Large Christian populations, majority Christian populations in some of those countries, and leadership is not great, and corruption is often uh, the norm in society. Why is that the case? Tanzania, parts of Kenya, Uganda? Why is it like that? Because you'd think... If Jesus changes the game, if he does influence, if leadership becomes a different thing under him, where there's most Christians, then you'd get it. You'd get all that good stuff. It's worth thinking about a problem like that. Well, one of the things is it takes a blooming long time to change culture. We, we look at several hundred, more, thousand plus years of culture change, of the gospel working through into our culture. We're still not great at it, but there are lots of great things in Western culture, Australian culture, that reflect Christ. Those things will unwind as people reject Christ, of course. We ought to expect our, our culture will deteriorate in some ways. But what about the places where there's an ascendancy of Christianity, and in some of these countries that's, that is the case? Well, we need to think how it is that Christ changes. You see, there's, this is an influence thing. This is a say it often enough and people will get the point thing. This is a thing that takes generation to generation. And when people are newly Christian, it's very hard for them to get such complex ideas as this. Although get it intellectually, but actually you live it through. And that's true again and again of the culture that Christ wants to bring about. And so what we need to think about is how do you change cultures? And as soon as you start thinking about that, it takes a long time. 
or it takes some extraordinary event to change a culture. And then only parts of the culture will be there, and then the individual heart hasn't caught up with the broader picture. And so it's worth noticing that. There are, as I think in Africa, pockets of real integrity, pockets of extraordinary leadership, pockets of pe people who, who really uh, will say no to corrupt stuff and live for God. It's a beautiful thing when you see it. But it's not the norm. Although people know it ought to be, because they've read their Bibles too. They understand what it should be. And when we think about Christ and culture, it's a big topic, and there's been lots of it written, especially since World War II, middle of the 20th century, the last sort of 50, 70 years. This has become something that's very much on the heart and minds of people in Christian leadership. And around the world, they're particularly uh, thinking in this post-colonial, you know, when all the big colonial powers, Britain and France, Germany, uh, Netherlands, these places all lost their powerful rule of the world in, in the last 50, 70 years then a lot of people are going, okay, how do you rebuild a society which has been dominated by the outside for a hundred or more years from Western uh, European cultures? How do you rebuild a society? How do you get good things like good leadership, no corruption? How do you have that happen? And there's all sorts of different theories and there's all sorts of deconstruction of what the reality is and biblical perspectives on top of secular perspectives. So this is a big topic and it's a thing I spend a lot of my time working on my work is working with Bible colleges, in other words, leadership training all through the developing world. And as I say, it was just a month or two, I was a couple of months ago, I was back in, um, in East Africa visiting four countries there, and it was again on my mind very much. How do you get Christian leaders to be this kind of Jesus leader? How does that happen? And one of the key things for us to grasp is that it's, it's um, very much an issue where you have to work at slowly changing culture, teaching the Bible into a cultural thing. One of the very distressing little phrases that's used in the last 50 years been used in uh, Africa is that Christianity in Africa is a mile wide and an inch deep. Let me translate, 1.6 kilometers wide and 2.5 centimeters deep. But the older saying uh, works more neatly. A mile wide and an inch deep. In other words, you know, there's lots of profession of Christ but not a lot of depth to the commitment. Now, again, that's, that's true in some places, and it's appallingly untrue in many. There, there are fine Christian leaders. There's fine, wonderful churches doing amazing stuff for the Lord in, in parts of Africa. But this saying is used, and it's used because people can go, yeah, look, sometimes that is true. And um, I've been reflecting, why would that be? Why would you have so much knowledge of Jesus, so much talk about Jesus, but not much depth in faith? I think there are two things. One is not nearly enough good leadership training, not enough Bible taught deeply through the, the, the church in order to then influence the church, in order to then influence the culture. But the other reason, I think, is that so much of the Christian um, teaching has been, here, this is how we do it in the West, do it there in Africa. See the problem with that? This is how we do it in the West. It works here for us, mostly, sometimes. So do it there. And not nearly enough time, effort, energy has been spent thinking through what are Africa's issues. So, you know, when I look through the textbooks that I read through the 80s and 90s and uh, forward since then, in my theology reading that is all generated from the West, it deals with about a half of the questions that are relevant I in Africa. There's just chapter after chapter that hasn't been written just because it's only Western people think about writing Western books. There's not nearly been enough writing of the stuff for Africa. 
and that's for different parts of Asia and Latin America and all the rest of it as well. There's just been not enough done. You see, it takes a long time to influence culture. It takes a long time to think through the issues. See, there's not one book that I ever read until more recently, written by Africans, did I, did I ever read about how you relate as a Christian leader when the, the ceremonial fire has to be kept alight in order for your spirit ancestors to be pleasing to you. Uh, there was not, I've not read one chapter in any of the textbooks that I ever read in all my theology degrees. No, none of that. See, uh, I could list 50 things that just have never been dealt with. And so what you need to get deep into a culture, the Christian realities, to, to bring Jesus into the place, you need a lot of time thinking, a lot of time developing the, the people who write the textbooks. As an aside, you might wonder why I go away so much and travel around the world. This is what I'm doing. I'm trying to promote that very thing, getting the leaders who can think through the culture, country by country by country, in order to write the books, in order to teach the pastors, in order to teach the congregation, in order to influence the society. That's what I spent my time doing and thinking and praying about. It's a wonderful thing to do. Let me give you further justification of how I think about it. This is not just an ad for what I'm doing, by the way. This, this is the point. This is the thing. This is why I, what I spend my energy on. You see, when we think about culture, we need to think about some parts of culture, you know, if we're looking at this, and culture's shifting and changing all the time, but if you just take a little snapshot, if you look at a culture at any point in time, what we need to do as Christians, we need to say, you know, some of that's really good. Some of that's really bad. And some of that doesn't really matter. It's just good or bad or uh, it, it's just, you know, ugly or beautiful, depending on your preference. You know, it's blue or green. Who cares? Good, the bad, and the ugly or beautiful. That's how to think about culture. And that's what we ought to do with thinking about our culture. One of the things I like about traveling and seeing different cultures is that I come back and I then critique my culture and look at what's good at my, about my culture, what's bad about my culture, and what's just, yeah, that's just how it is. And we could do that even in smaller little subgroups, couldn't we, about mountains culture or even family culture. What's good about my culture and your culture and how can we learn from each other? This is actually one of the ways we improve the way we live as Christian people is we compare my little subculture with your little subculture. Oh, you do it that way? Whoa, doesn't matter at all. I just do it this way. Or, oh, that's a much better thing. I can learn from you. Or, why don't you see how I've thought it through, how, how we do it, because that might help you to grow and change. That's part of what, you know, most couples, when they marry, that they're, they're bringing two cultures. You notice that? At the very little micro level, and then they create a new culture. And there'll be good and hopefully lots of good from both ones and not so much of the bad from both ones. That's, that's your goal, by the way. If, you, if you're married, that's what you're trying to do. So as we think about culture, we have to understand, now, who's best to do that? Well, it's helpful to have partners in conversation from other cultures to talk about your culture. But in the end, it's got to be done by those local people. That's why the, the people in southwest Africa have to write the book about keeping that sacred fire alive and whether that's a good thing or not. I'll give you a clue. I don't think it is. <laughs> but, but they need to work it out. Because they have the more issues than just me standing here going, ah, clearly you've got it wrong. Because they'll have wider issues to work through as, a, as a, an influence in their society. So it's these kinds of things that have to be thought through. And until the church grows and develops and strengthens its leadership, its understanding of the scriptures and its understanding of its culture, it just won't keep getting deeper. The 
the great thing about this is Christ wants every culture to be the best it can be. This is one of the things that often thrown at Christians, isn't it? That the, the way missionaries function is to crush the local culture and plop on a new outside culture. That's actually not what the Christian idea is at all. Sometimes it happens that way, but that's not the idea. The idea is to think, what does Christ want for this culture, for this society, for this group, for this family, for this person? He wants the best. And he will critique and say, that is good in what you're doing, that is bad, and uh, just pick blue or green, whatever you like. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is a critical part of leadership. And this is part of, if you're leader of somewhere, you need to be a culture critic. Not of the other people's cultures, your own. And learn through it. Okay, well, how's our group functioning? Are we leading in a way which is really helpful and healthy and developing and in line with Christ? And as am I as leader being the person who is self-sacrificing, who is the servant? Because the more I do that, the more I'll be caring for the people, the more I'll be growing goodness of Christ in those other people. And whether we think whole countries, whole continents, or whether we think me right here with my little group or even my little family, my group of friends, how am I influencing them? Am I influencing them to be like Christ? My, my, my gospel community, my church, am I influencing it for good? That's the question we can spend our time on. The glorious thing about Jesus is he is a game changer. But he's also an influencer. He works slowly, gradually, through hearts, through effort, through thinking, through setting this different cultural way of leading. We enjoy in the West so many of the things that have influenced our society from the gospel. And it's true for other places as well as it gradually shifts and changes. It's true we'll see in our own hearts how he's influenced and changed us. What a joy that is. Jesus is worth worshipping because of who he is and also because he changes lives. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this world you've made. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has called us to himself. We thank you, Father, for the way that he wants good for us, for his world. He wants it to be the best it can be, place by place, uh, society by society. And help us to see it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to acknowledge how wonderful he is. We are grateful, Father, for the, the call on our own lives. We just ask for those of us who are leaders in our churches, in our, our small groups, in our workplaces, in whatever context, our families, that you'd help us to lead in the way that Christ led. Help us, Father, too, to be able to speak about Jesus in a way that shows our appreciation, our deep, deep satisfaction with him, our joy and glorying in him. Thank you that he is a game changer for our society. May he be so increasingly around this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.